You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I am. I am. I'm just back from 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 a. Uh, I went around the world the stupid way. So I went. <laughs> what does that know, mean by boat? Well, you know, but the, the <laughs> wrong way. So I went to the UK and then Canada to the far west and then oh. back east coast US and then and home. And there were there were two silver linings on that. One, and it was really good science in, in all three places I was in. And and two. I got to see the the solar eclipse in the oh, U.S. Oh yes, you posted that on uh, Facebook, and I may have sent you a rude message, possibly um, calling um, you a bastard or something. Or well, <laughs> I was really proud because because I did not have the the, the solar glasses. So um, some of the people around me had them and borrowed them, but I, I very quickly made a little shadow box by punching a hole in my own business oh. card and then using yep. the program to, to look at it. It was about 85% where I was, which was wow, – like it got darker. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I think – so I looked it up. The next solar eclipse in Australia is February next year. It's a partial eclipse. Partial. And yeah. so I knew there was total and partial, but did you know there's one other type of solar eclipse? What's the third? Annular. So that's when the moon is not in the right position. So it, even it's a total eclipse, oh, but it doesn't block it's out. It's too close. Yeah, it's too yeah, close. Too so close you to see a little annulus of, of sun uh, coming yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Um, and so it, what I did miss, though, so th- that was great, seeing the solar eclipse, good science. But the terrible thing was I missed Radiothon. Yep. And and it is it is just an amazing two shows and, and an amazing period, not just because of making me mispronounce the Melbourne suburbs I don't know yet. But um, but it, it's so amazing to see people say, hey, come out and and, and say that they like the show and, and what they think of it. So this morning, because I've only been back in the country two days, before I, the show started, I did something very important. I subscribed because you can still do it online. Good man. So, uh, Well, you can actually, and I should say a huge thank you to all the people who subscribed uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks to Triple R. It is super important that people do that because the station gets most of its revenue, of course, from you. And without you, we can't function. And we'd like to come in here. Of course, we're all volunteers, so we like to come in here and give up our time. But we also like to be able to sit on things and have equipment to use. And unfortunately, that costs money. So the good news is, though, if you haven't already subscribed, you can still do it before 5 p.m. on Wednesday, the 20th of September. And you still go into all the um, the prize draws and so forth. I think that's right. It's still open. So if you want to do it online, you can you can do that. It's $75, and it is really helpful. And the one thing I've never understood is, although I super appreciate people subscribing at different times a year, this is the only time of year when you can actually win all the, the huge number of prizes that are on uh, available. So, like, if you're going to do it, try and do it during this period because it's when you might actually um, get something cool out of it, like a international trip or something. Cinema, Novo, Nova... There's all sorts of yeah, stuff. There's yeah, the there's the reading stuff off the wall. Yeah, uh, we've got we've got Mount all over Code the wall Brewery. here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. it's cool stuff. Um, anyway, we should get into oh. um, some science news. We have uh, two great guests in the uh, green room, uh, eagerly awaiting uh, their time in the studio, folks. Uh, but before we get them in, uh, we're going to give you some science news, Doctor Ray. Start right, with you. So, Doctor Shane, I saw this and I went, "No way! I had no idea. I thought this is so cool." So, Mars, not much of an atmosphere. Yeah, bugger all. We, we know it has ice. We, we, we know we've had probes there as well. And we know that in some places it has snow on the ground. Hmm. But so here's the thing. It, it, people always thought one thing for snow, it, like it came down. But, but I didn't know this. And they just figured it out based on, on, on sur- orbital surveying and the Phoenix probe. Uh, it snows on Mars. Still. S- snowstorms. Yeah. But only at night. Nice. Uh, and and, and you're, I'm going, what? 
And, and so there were so many things I, well, I started reading about this that I did not know about the Martian atmosphere. First, Mars has clouds. <laughs> it yeah. has clouds. I mean, and this is something that was one of the first things I realized about the Martian atmosphere. It has clouds. Now, they're water ice clouds. But you're going, wait a minute. There's not much of an atmosphere. How does it have clouds? And this is this, this great thing about relative humidity. And so clouds are, of course, condensed water on, on our planet, condensed water up in, because we get to a high relative humidity and the water condenses out as drops. Well, because Mars is so cold, 100% relative humidity can be a very low temperature. So you can actually make clouds in the atmosphere. And so then people had this theory about how it snows on Mars. And they went, oh, well, there's no real atmosphere or circulation. So we reckon those ice clouds, eventually those flakes just kind of very slow, slowly fall and settle down on Mars. Hmm. Hmm. But as it turns out, based on... Uh, surveying orbit where they see a lot of mixing in the atmosphere at night. And the Phoenix lander, which also saw evidence of, of downpourings of snow in little, little areas, they actually, uh, a set of researchers did a lot of climate modeling and actually showed that what happens is, is you get snowstorms at night. Because as the air cools down and as, and, and the clouds actually radiate heat and they lose heat when at nighttime, it gets cold enough that they get all this convective mixing. We would call that a storm. Uh, they get all this convective mixing, and they actually it snows at night, hmm. and and it completely changes how they thought snow got on the ground there. And I just went snowstorms at night on Mars. That's that's amazing. One that we could we have that that we have the surveying there, both in orbital and on land to measure it, and that we take really sharp climate change people or climate modeling, and we can predict hmm. climate behavior on Mars. And we can predict it on this planet, too. I mean, so now we're predicting climates on, on two different planets. We might be getting good at this. Yeah, we're getting um, good at this. And I think, what, I mean, Mars for me has always been one of those, and people have heard me say this on, on there before, it's one of my least interested planets. You know, I'm not big on Mars. Uh, but that being said, um, when I say that, it's relative to, you know, some of the particular moons of Jupiter and Saturn. And Mars, even though it's not as interesting to me as those two, or two of the moons, it is still still super bloody interesting in its own right, you know. So yeah. it's not it's not the top of my list, but it's still cool. And the thing that um, when you talk about the atmosphere, that, that a lot of times people don't think about is why is Elon Musk and others trying all this fancy rocketry where they land the rockets after they launch them? Well, I can tell you why, folks. It's because parachutes just do not work well on Mars because the atmosphere is too thin. So huh? if you can't slow down your rocket and the ground on Mars. Ooh. They meet pretty yeah, pretty yeah. rapidly. And even that's not even good. without units errors. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, even with lower gravity and so forth, um, it's still a really big problem. And that was the great thing about the Curiosity rover when they, when they landed it. And some people will remember that elaborate sequence they went through of rockets and parachutes and everything else. Oh, yeah, and then and the and, bubbles on you know, the yeah, tetrahedron shape. All this shape weird and... stuff. And that was to basically look at a range of technologies that could be used to land successfully on Mars because you can't just parachute down and the gravity is much stronger than it is on the moon. So even, even on the moon, it was a difficult landing. When Neil Armstrong first did it, you know, he didn't quite get, you know, it wasn't X mark the spot didn't really uh, work out for yeah. Neil. So they, you know, it was, it was difficult. This stuff is difficult. So Mars to me, it's so much happening there that's um, interesting that, that I think, you know, even though it's not my most sought yeah. after place to visit uh it's still um it's still pretty cool so yeah. excellent stuff snow on mars eh? only snows at night only at night that. yeah that's pretty cool um starting to be that way in some of the mountains just in melbourne too <laughs> by the way it's only cold enough at night now i wanted to talk about some great work that's um come out of the university of new south wales um just up north of us where this has basically taken something that we you, you know when you learn things at school 
And most of the things you learn scientifically or mathematically at school take, you know, they're pretty much there for the rest of your life. It's rare that someone turns around and says, hey, water. It's not made of hydrogen and, you know, oxygen. Yeah, no, anymore. Normally so when it's made it into a textbook at that level, it's pretty solid. And there's a few examples. I've got a textbook at home that talks about the shrinking apple model of the earth. That one's not right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit older. Um, it's a great, great old book, but, you know, plate tectonics hadn't uh, featured at that point in time when it was written. So these, I'm not that old. It's an old okay. book. Okay. Gosh. I, I, um, I was sitting there, I'm like, yeah, it might be no, not to quite. Ask, yeah, I'm not, I didn't go to school in the 1950s, but, um, but, you know, I've got the book and it, and it has a different approach. But one of the things that's been pretty solid for us is trigonometry. You know, this was invented by the Greeks. Pythagoras' um, theorem. Pythagoras' theorem, you know, the, what is it? Uh, the, the, the square sum- of the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the square of the other two sides. Is that it? Yep, yes. I think it was it. Um, so, you know, if you're trying to work out uh, the sides of a triangle, folks, and, you know, you've got, uh, you've got some special right-angle triangles, for example. You've got a 3-4-5 triangle where if one side is 3 centimetres long and another side is 4 centimetres, then the third one is 5 centimetres. That's a special – they're called uh, triplets, I think, or mm-hmm. something like that. Anyway, they, um, they're these special, um, special sort of ratios in trigonometry. This is all fantastic. Um, but there's a guy up at uh, University of New South Wales named Daniel Mansfield. He's from the School of Mathematics and Statistics who has recently been looking at a really old clay tablet, a Babylonian clay tablet. So this is basically um, 3,700 years old. So it's about 1,000 years or so before Pythagoras and the Greeks and mm-hmm. we're doing this sort of stuff. And people have been trying to work out what this tablet meant for a long time. The tablet itself has been designated Plimpton 322. Exciting name. Exciting name. And what um, Daniel Mansfield has worked out is that this particular tablet – well, hang on. Before I get to that, I want to tell you a funny story. This tablet was discovered um, basically by an archaeologist named Edgar Banks. Now, a lot of people won't know this, but he's the guy that the character of Indiana Jones is based on. Okay, I was cool. wondering. Yeah. Uh, cool. Anyway, Google him. Um, but anyway, this tablet – So is attractive as Harrison – never, never yeah. mind. Um, <laughs> we walk from here. Yeah. Anyway, um, this, this, this particular – a tablet um, has been something people have been trying to work out what's on there because there seem to be quite complex mathematical formulas or, or, or details on this tablet. And what um, what he's worked out is that there are these basically columns and rows on this tablet of these inscriptions, and if you convert them to our sort of normal mathematics, you find out that these are very specific trigonometric ratios to define. Um, different size triangles, different types of triangles. And this tablet was probably used in building construction and so forth back in those days to work out angles and, and so, so forth. So it's a trigonometric table? It's a table. You know, it's like a, a oh, funky wow. version of a slide rule. You know, this is a table. Now, the, the thing that probably made it hard to work some of this stuff out is it wasn't based on... so. It wasn't based on a base 10 numbering system. So one of the things that we know is that, you know, you count to 10 and then you put a number in the next column, right? So this, this is how we count. Um, computers use zeros and ones, so they have a binary-based numbering system. These guys used a base 60 numbering system, which 60? is a bit different. Now, we, everyone sort of hears that and they go, oh, 60. But actually, we use a base 60 numbering system all the day, yeah. all day when we tell the time, yeah. right? So, you know, basically you, get, you count to 60 seconds and then you call it a minute. Then you count to 60 minutes and then you call it an hour. That's a base 60 numbering system. That's that's essentially what these these um, 
ancient Babylonians were, were doing on this clay tablet. And so this trigonometric table is incredibly accurate. The funny thing is it talks about these special triangles, like the 345 triangle, which people remember from school yeah. vaguely. Oh, yeah, the old 345 triangle. Well, there's more than just the 345 triangle, of course, because there are other ones with bigger and bigger and bigger numbers. And some of the ones that they actually talk about um, in terms of these particular triangles are quite large. So, for example, one of the ones that's referenced on this tablet, um, in addition to the 345, is the 119, 120, 169, which I will say I didn't know about. <laughs> so if you, if you work it out, that's another one. And there's quite a few of these where there are these particular types of, of triples um, from Pythagoras' theorem, and we're going to have to rename it something else oh, wow. now because it's not Pythagoras' theorem. Obviously, these guys were doing it a lot, lot earlier. Um, and so this is this is really, uh, I mean, this is a fantastic discovery, and and, and um, I think it's one of those things where when you take modern knowledge, modern mathematicians and so forth, and you look at some of this historical stuff and say, just how smart were these people back then? Well, how long was this tablet discovered? You said it was... Oh, I mean, we've had it for a long time. Yeah. So yeah, this yeah. is a puzzle where you have probably had over time a lot of different brilliant yeah. minds look at this and go, don't quite get it. And then for one to go, oh, well, you look at that. Yeah, yeah, no, this is over a century of, you know, yeah. we've had this a long time. So anyway, it's really cool. And they think um, that because of the way they went about this, so they didn't use the sort of, you know, sum of the square of the LGSOs, blah, blah, blah. They use these ratios. Um, they think, well, there might be some applications in terms of things like surveying and computer graphics and so forth and the way we educate even today that we could actually learn from these these sort of Babylonians' methodology. And so, well, actually, maybe it's a better thing to teach triangles and stuff this way than than the That's way we normally do it. So, so there's some inter- interesting stuff there. But basically, um, this this takes uh, this this particular piece takes you back a thousand years further than where we thought this stuff first originated. And the idea that the ancient Babylonians were using trigonometry to this level of accuracy. I mean, you think about that. You, if you're working out those side lengths of those triangles, and you've got sides where they literally are up in the hundreds, you don't have a calculator. These guys didn't have slide rules. No. They're doing this either the long way, the hard way, in a base, ten, a base 60 numbering system. Ouch. <laughs> Tough stuff. Really brilliant. So No measuring tapes. Yeah. And someone had the, uh, the, the amazing foresight to, to hammer it out in a stone tablet and, um, and yeah. keep it there for all to use and see as a, as a, you know, a reference. So anyway, very cool stuff. Congratulations to the University of New South Wales for pulling that out. I think it's um, fabulous works doing the rounds in the media at the moment. Very, very interesting. What else you got? Uh, oh, so I have a, I'll, I'll make it a short one. Mm. But um, so I, I, it's about nuclear power uh, and that uh, a Dutch nuclear research institute, institute has just done the first experiment on next generation nuclear reactors based on thorium in nearly half a century. Right. So I went thorium nuclear reactor. I didn't mm. even I, I wasn't that familiar with this. So thorium can be slightly radioactive and you can get U233 out of it, which is a fissionable material if you irradiate with high high energy neutrons. So for those of you that are not experts on nuclear power generation, nor am I, I had to look. So U-235 is the standard one that's used. Now, U-235, which is what runs in most reactors, creates a lot of waste. U-233 actually will create fewer long-lived waste products, um, but it, thorium as has been around as a, as a possibility for 50 years, but yeah. it hasn't really been further than that, but hasn't been looked at for more than 45 years. Mm. Because U-233, the, the, the uranium that comes out of fissionable that's out of thorium, is very difficult to reprocess into plutonium. 
Yeah, yeah. No weapons. And, and so because mm-hmm. a lot of our nuclear power plant technology really spun off from nuclear weapons research, mm-hmm. the people didn't really explore thorium. And so they're actually uh, working on exploring that. There's, they're not doing this in a vacuum. It's since 2004, uh, India has been very slowly working on a, uh, a research reactor that, that hasn't gotten, quite gotten turned on yet. But the Netherlands have launched this salt irradiation experiment called Salient in collaboration with the EU. And so the other neat thing about this, uh, again, nuclear reactor technology, still learning, but as a chemical engineer, this really made sense, is that they want to um, – they can make thorium what's called a, 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 a molten salt reactor. So if you take sodium chloride, just as an example, a salt – you know, we know we know it dissolves in water, but you can actually heat it up, mm. and at some point it becomes a liquid. And molten salts are amazing heat transfer fluids, and so they actually want to mix thorium with the different salts and actually make a molten salt. So that means the nuclear fuel is a liquid that you can recirculate in a pipe and put in a much more traditional heat exchanger to make steam. The current process is you have these solid rods; mm. they go into water, they heat up the steam. You have this chain reaction. And it can become runaway, which is what happened in Fukushima. These molten salt reactors are much less likely to have that type of problem. So it's an interesting way to explore because it, thorium as a, a reactor first because it might have less waste. But two, the design of this next generation reactor might be much more controllable. Mm, so they still have some challenges in making sure it'll work and then making sure they have the right alloys that can deal with that type of heat exchanger with neutron irradiation. So there's there's challenges, but it's it's just exciting to see that type of research be be explored because it it's for power generation not 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 weapons, not weapons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. my money's still on the fusion reactor one would hope they're building and we know it can work you know why because of the sun so, funny that <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh it's funny maybe we could get uh, the donald trump to look oh. at the fusion reactor anyway i know it was no. just a frame but yeah funny stuff funny stuff it was good for the kiddies to see the president looking at the un the sun yeah, with, with, without, without glasses on <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I think everyone knew it was bad. Uh, we're going to take a short break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're talking to a statistician, and uh, it's going to be interesting stuff from what we've heard so far in the green room. Back in just a moment. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. 3 Triple R. You are listening to 3 Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Dr. Karen Lamb. She's from the Institute of Physical Activity and Nutrition at Deakin University. Karen, welcome to Triple R. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Now, we're going to start off by talking about your background because if people didn't catch that, you have a very, very not strong at all Scottish accent. Yes. <laughs> so tell us a bit about where you, where you grew up and, and what science was like there, you know, what got you involved so I grew up in a little village in Scotland, about 45 minute drive from Glasgow. Um, and, you know, I have to confess to start with, I was, I've never really been that passionate about mathematics or I certainly yeah. wasn't at school. I really liked it at primary school. Um, I liked to work through all my problems and then, you know, help my classmates out. And then I went to high school and became really quite disengaged with mathematics. Yeah, yeah, as a lot of people do, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm a really practical person and I like to know why I'm learning what I'm learning. And I think, I mean, I can't speak to maths education nowadays, but certainly when I was learning maths, it was taught, like, you just need to know this, just yeah. learn this. And I didn't know why I was doing anything. So, so I tell you, just recently, my 10-year-old came home and I had to show him long division. Mm-hmm. And I just worked out why I learned it. So I could show my <laughs> 10-year-old. <laughs> I was like, oh, 
Yes, I'm glad I did that. Of course, I didn't remember it. I had to look it up. Um, but it's, yeah, it's funny. We, we don't often get it that way. No, and I mean, I'm, I'm actually, I'm really fortunate. My dad's actually a mathematician. Okay. Um, so I used to come home really, really frustrated and be like, why the hell am I learning this? This means nothing to me. And he used to give me practical examples and say, you know, if you're building a bridge, you need to know this. Um, and that really helped me. Um, but I still I can't say I was amazingly passionate about it at school. Um, but I was a very pragmatic 17-year-old. And when I was going to university, I thought, maybe I'll go study maths. I can do it. Like, I think it's going okay. But um, it'll hopefully get me a job. Um, hmm. And so, yeah, went to university, started doing mathematics, decided to do statistics as well because it's like maths. Um and that's where I really developed a passion. Um, mm. My undergraduate lecturers in statistics were just phenomenal. Um, they always taught us their courses from their applied examples. Some of them were working with the vet school, the medical school, with some financial people, environmental science. And they always drew on those examples when teaching us. So I was like, great, maths is a purpose. I know what yeah, I'm doing yeah. with this. Yeah. Um, and that's what really inspired me to, to continue learning statistics. Yeah. Now, let's go back for a moment to your, your dad being a mathematician. Yeah. What, what was it like? I mean, you know, I'm sort of reflecting on my, my own parenting experience here because as a physicist, I think, am I different as a dad to dads that don't do this sort of stuff like how how was it for you as a as a child having a parent who was a mathematician did you do was it different i don't think so i mean obviously i didn't have another dad so i don't know um but yeah he my dad was very good in that he didn't he was actually also a professional footballer when he was a kid oh there you go so he always (laughs) said he didn't want to push either my brother or i into mathematics or football so he kind of left us to it and thought if we come to him and ask about it then he will try and engage us i mean of course he talked about what he did because he loves what he does yeah um, but it wasn't, it's certainly not the, the only reason I went to do what I did. There was clearly an interest there somewhere. I wanted to know why, mm. why I was doing what I was doing. But I don't think he was too weird. Maybe cool. I'm wrong. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I feel a bit better. Um, now, yeah, we'll, it, we'll yeah. see what happens when we ask <laughs> questions. Ask uh, my kids that in 20 years. Um, in terms of that, you, you currently uh, listed as one of the superstars of STEM. This is a program that's uh, in particular to encourage women into the sciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, just give us a bit of background on what that means. It's it's one of the, I think there are 30 yeah. um, women Australia-wide, who, or, uh, women and men, or is it all women? It's all women. All women. All women. Um, who have been listed under this new program in in 2017. I mean, tell us a bit about the program, what it means, what you end up doing. So the program was geared at trying to get 30 women from across a broad range of science, technology, engineering and mathematics to try and, um, I guess, show that women are working in these fields Mm. and that we have a passion, we're enthusiastic, we want to talk about it too, but they're typically thought of as being quite male-orientated disciplines. Um, and so we wanted to show other women and girls that are thinking about going into these these programs, into these these jobs, that we're here too, and we can hopefully be a role model for them. So this program, over the next twelve months, um, is trying to help develop our communication skills and help us talk to people about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, so they've got a bunch of workshops over the next twelve months, and. You know, they're, they're linking us to one another so we can support each other, which mm. ultimately is so far been why I've been so excited about the program. The other women are just 
so fascinating, so exciting. Their work's so cool, and it's mm. really great to be connected with them. Yeah, fantastic. And we've already had uh, at least one. On. Yeah, Linda. Uh, she is a Linda. legend. I love she Linda. She was phenomenal. From the Bureau of Meteorology um, as well, we had one. Um, oh, did you? Okay. Uh, oh, geez, see, I'm getting old. I can't remember. Um, <laughs> but uh, just amazing people who, you know, just... Mm. Uh, and you talk about, you know, doing work in communication, but <laughs> to be honest, the people we've talked to so far, yourself included, are very good communicators of science. I think there's a passion there already yeah i was just curious you said workshops what are, is this about or are you doing outreach stuff i mean cool that you're you're doing radio with us but i imagine you're probably doing <laughs> higher than profile things than triple than r what <laughs> i like triple r but, um, but i have a face for radio though but uh so no what, what are the workshops about the types of things you're so so far we've we've just completed the first workshop and it's about engaging with social media um the next one i think is i should know this um is i think it's about sort of more public speaking and we're also going to have more media workshops so if you guys had invited me six months down the track i should be much better than i am today Um, you're doing fine you're doing fine now let's let's talk a bit about your the work itself because i think this is something that it's often hard to get across across to people the the interest that someone might have (laughs) in statistics and you know so the half joking when I say that but but it is difficult because as you say a lot of people get disengaged with maths in particular mm. in high school this leads into statistics programs and so um the you know that's a difficult challenge and as you say maybe the example version of doing it is the way to go but why don't you give us a couple of examples of projects you're working on at the moment that you find just fascinating that are amazing so I, oh, my work has been so diverse since mm. I, like my PhD was in infectious disease. So I was right. looking at childhood infectious disease and um, whether a vaccine intervention was going to be effective in preventing disease. Um, and then, you know, I, I went from that. That was really cool because in that work, I got to work with pharmaceutical companies. I got to work with public health researchers, other mathematicians, statisticians, um, and really helped solve real life problems. Um using both mathematics and statistics. Um, and then I went from infectious disease work into more public health um, from a different perspective, more um, sort of... I've worked in neighbourhoods and health, so mm-hmm. how where you live influences your health outcomes. Yeah. Um, but I was a project statistician there, so I wasn't so much leading my own research. And then from that, I went into cancer research um, and was looking at sort of predictors of childhood cancer. And since then, the last couple of years, I've found myself in physical activity and nutrition research. Mm. Um, And I'm at the moment in a sort of split role where part of my time, I do consultancy work with our institute staff um, where I can help them with any of their weird and wonderful questions on anything to do with physical activity and nutrition. And then I guess the side that people don't think about so much with statistics is the fact that not only are we helping people answer questions using existing tools, but... We look at drawing from methods used elsewhere, but also develop methodology. That's a huge part of a statistician's job, but mm. everyone thinks we're just in the background just plugging away with like, yeah, yeah. You know, linear regression yeah. or whatever. The, the, the computer's in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also have names and, and their people too. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, We just post the stuff in under the door and then a few days later... It comes out for us. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, they don't usually let us out of our office very often. <laughs> no one wants to talk to us. So, <laughs> so um, this is an area that... that I don't think people realize just how much has properly probably transformed in the last 10 years because in population health, medicine, cancer research, the other ones you've mentioned, the, our ability to acquire data 
on and mm. sample mm. On, a, on, on a large number of variables has just been growing exponentially every year. And, and what I found fascinating from stories I've heard within Melbourne Uni is, well, you have this growth of data. You have medical researchers or population health or areas where there, there are a lot of people that might know that there's data but don't have the background to necessarily take advantage of it. Mm. And, and so that you see statisticians. So you said you work consultant with, in, in consulting. I, I was wondering, you must have experiences where you have turned on people and people that are a little naive or don't remember statistics, but they know there's a potential there. I mean, this must be an exciting field, but are there any challenges with perhaps educating people or is this an opportunity? I like to think of it as an opportunity. I mean, um, I see a lot of people that really lack confidence in dealing with mathematics and statistics. And I don't know, again, if it goes back to their schooling and being turned off from it and um, just feeling that they can't do it. And what I really like through the consultancy work, I mean, I work with about, I think it's almost 70 members of staff and, you know, as many students and there's one of me. So mm-hmm. I can't do everyone's analysis for them. I need to help empower them to be able to, to answer their own questions as much as possible. Um, so what I spend a lot of my time doing is trying to figure out where you stand with your understanding and your knowledge and your confidence and try and help with that. I'll try and figure out how to teach them what they need to know or, like you say, tell them what they don't know or what they thought they knew and, and help highlight how they could be using statistics better. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, well, as, as a follow-up, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just with that, is there is there an argument for us to go back and, and reevaluate the training in the medical and biological area a little bit more to see if, if a component of statistics or math should be something, a, it's not going to do what, what you do, but a little bit more forefront mm. in those curriculum at the university level? Or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, sort of from my learnings from when I was studying in Scotland, <clears throat> excuse me, um, a lot of like biologists might only get a 10-week course in statistics and mm. it's not enough to really get an understanding and it's you know, the, it's often quite simplistic stuff they're getting taught. And as you see, things have developed so much now with um, computing technology and the wealth of data we're able to collect. And, you know, it, it's quite often not taught in the most inspiring way to the people that really need to use it. Um, and I think if it's taught using examples from their different disciplines, then maybe it'll be more appealing mm. to, to them. The, the amazing part about that I always find too is when you look at all the medical degrees and the biomedical degrees, they take in the absolute cream of the crop of students mm. who, believe it or not, were pretty good at maths mm-hmm. when they finished high school. So, And then they do no maths for like three, four, five, six years, then all of a sudden realise after that, oh, we should, you know, should know some statistics. It would be helpful. But, but they came in to the university system primed yep. to do maths, which is a bit of a shame we don't take advantage of that. Karen, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you, what are the big problems in sort of the research around statistics and you mentioned the methodologies and so forth so i know in physics you know it's a, you know it's uh, black holes it's uh, you know all these various things that we're still learning about that a lot of effort's being put into what is that for statistics what's burning the statistics community at the moment for me personally or for me um so one of the things i'm really interested in is um an area on missing data so yeah. What happens quite a lot, we'll do big surveys with people. So at the moment I'm working with folk looking at um, nutrition surveys and people don't necessarily answer all the questions. And with the existing older statistical techniques, if we didn't have all the data we needed for an individual, they would just just use the analysis. Um, 
So now there are, there are more sophisticated methods where we're trying to predict what the values could be for, for those missing pieces of information. Um, and we can do that several times and then use that in the analysis so we can use the rest of their data to predict what, hmm. what we wanted to know about them. Hmm. So, Cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, I mean, I, th- there must be pounds of data. There must be old data too that was potentially still there that people didn't utilise that you could go back and, you know, the pharma companies are doing this at the moment with genetic analysis and mm. so forth. There must, be, there must be data that statisticians now with this new approach can go back and say, you know what, that data wasn't used. Let's re-examine that data yeah. and see if it brings out different re- results. Yeah, because I think what we've got to realise is a lot of the methods we still use these days were developed a long time mm. ago and mm. maybe they're not the most appropriate for what we're trying to, to use now. Yeah. Well, Karen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in the studio. Thanks so much. Uh, I assume you probably drove all the way from Geelong to get here too? Are you based in Oh Geelong? no, I'm in North Melbourne. Oh, thank I, goodness. I walked up and got caught in the heels. Oh, that's all right. I always Great feel Melbourne a bit guilty when, when we have people come all the way from Geelong, um, which is which is a huge effort for most of our Deakin guests. But thanks so much for coming in. It's a pleasure talking to you. Good yeah, luck with uh, pushing statistics out there. It's important. And, and I suspect all the statisticians out there know that they're a pretty sought after community at the moment as the data stuff goes wild. Thanks, Absolutely. For, thanks for the chat. Thank you very much. Dr. Karen Lamb is from the Institute for Physical Activity and Nutrition at Deakin University. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment talking with one of the original people involved in the Wild Melbourne Project. You're on Triple R. Three Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Rachel Featherston. She is the co-founder and publications authority of Wild Melbourne. Rachel, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you in here. Now, for those of us on Twitter, and I'm a, you know half-baked old white dude on Twitter who <laughs> kind of knows that you can tweet stuff. Um, I mean, you guys have a lot of activity. I mean, there's a lot going on, I see. First of all, let's talk about how Wild Melbourne started and what it is, because you're one of the people at the, you know, day one. Yes, I am. So it um, began back in 2013, and our um, current managing director, Chris McCormack, basically came to a bunch of us. We'd all studied zoology together, um, doing Bachelor of Science at Monash University. And um, a lot of us were graduating or about to graduate. And he sort of came up and said, look, guys, do we want to keep sort of keep going with our education in a way, um, but pass on what we've learnt at Monash University to the general public and get that zoological knowledge out to the public of Melbourne and Victoria and get people engaged with the natural world through mm. science. Um, so we just started up um, a website, wildmelbourne.org, and it sort of started off just as a place for each of us to publish articles about what we found interesting about the wildlife around Melbourne and Victoria. So maybe a bird species in our backyard that we were particularly mm. interested in or just yeah. a, a research concept we were interested in. But then it sort of began to grow um, primarily through social media, like you said, with Twitter and also um, on Facebook and eventually Instagram, where we just garnered quite a quite a lot of followers in the Melbourne and Victoria area, people um, people who were interested in science, but just people who loved the natural world in general, um, sort of getting interested in the articles that we wrote. So now it's it's grown to to be almost a hub for people to come to, to to learn about how to get out into nature, but also learning about the science behind local wildlife and habitats so that they can understand it and hopefully through that understanding come to appreciate and maybe work to help pr- protect them as well. Mm. So, so how much is it, and, and maybe it's both, but there's obviously the, the city of Melbourne itself and there's a certain amount of wildlife that 
I almost said encroaches on the city, but it's kind of the other way around. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's, there's wildlife that comes, comes into the city that we see, you know, whether it's bird life or possums or whatever else. Um, but then there's the, the sort of natural reserves and, and areas around or just outside the city that are, you know, more, and I, again, to carefully use the word pristine, um, you know, are, are, are less screwed up by us, shall we say. Um, I mean, how, how is that balance uh, working with Wild Melbourne? Yeah, look, that's a really good question because we did, obviously, the name Wild Melbourne um, suggests that we're based in the city and we're looking mm. at urban wildlife. But from the beginning, we did want to include all of Victoria in that. So we do try and have a bit of a balance between people living in the city and people out in rural areas or even people living in the city who want to get out of the city and go to those, I guess, more um, pristine places um, just to, you know, have a weekend away or a day trip out there. But um, I guess, yeah, the, the ethos of Wild Melbourne is sort of how can we bring the nature into the everyday? So not not just when you have, you know, a free day to go out, you know, to a national park or to the beach or something, but also how do you bring the natural world um, into your work day, into your school day? You know, when you're walking to work, do you notice the wildlife around you or the habitats around you? Um, do you notice what's in your backyard or your local park? Park. So through the articles that we publish online, at least, we do have sort of adventure-style pieces where people are going on, on day hikes outside of the city or going snorkelling or diving um, at the beach. But then we also have um, probably the majority of our articles are people looking at the things immediately around them. So looking at community projects, say restoration projects in suburbs um, around Melbourne and looking at urban wildlife and how we can um, learn about them and interact with them and how we can protect them. So I guess we do try to have a balance between that because people um, w- want to get away and they mm. want to see nature outside of the city. But um, I guess we want people to stop and think, well, actually, I don't need to leave the city. I can see it in my own backyard and, and learn about it um, in my own backyard, yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I-, I was looking at the website this morning and, and, and last night, and there were a couple of things that struck me. I mean, there were there were neat things on there, even even book reviews. The one about eight cool things about mozzie mosquito, Australian mosquitoes was was kind of neat. Uh, and the bright colors was one of them. But I was fascinated by the site because the the when you looked up the publications, the categories you ticked on were were very interesting juxtaposition because there was one on science, but there was also one on art. Yeah, right, right next to it. Could you kind of yeah, take well, us through that? That's a really interesting way to to think about nature with that juxtaposition. Yeah, there. well, definitely. That actually sort of comes from my own background because, as I said, we all started off as science students, but I was one of the few in the group that had an arts background as well. And everyone in the group um, that works for Wild Melbourne, they all have an appreciation for the arts, but I also had a Bachelor of Arts and I was um, about to do my honours in literary studies when we started Wild Melbourne. And uh, as much as I loved science and I wanted to be a part of the science communication in terms of um, the science behind nature, I knew that a lot of people... Um, often struggle to engage with with science in a way. Mm. So through the arts, um, that was one of the ways I personally loved engaging with the natural world and learning about the natural world. So we wanted to make that a big part of Wild Melbourne and a part of the website. So th- like you'll see, if you go and, and visit wildmelbourne.org, we've got science, we've got arts, we've also got a philosophy section, um, which is sort of people talking about, um, you know, sort of thought pieces on their experience in, in nature, like people experiencing mindfulness in nature and all that sort of thing. Thing and looking at, at things like eco-philosophy, um, which is a growing 
sort of school of thought at the moment where people are looking at these big cultural shifts in the way we perceive nature, not just through science, but before, um, but sorry, through more sort of esoteric ideas like um, are in philosophy. And then we've got the, the adventure page, like I spoke about before, where people can actually read and see where they can go and experience nature. And um, we've also got the natural history um section which is just sort of um general obviously often involves a lot of science as well but could just be people going bird watching and talking about the birds mm. that they've seen mm. um so yeah it's interesting that you I'm, I'm glad that you've noticed that we do the arts as well because we do try and have a balance between different disciplines so we're trying to be more cross-disciplinary and that we're not just about science communication we're almost about arts communication as well and and philosophy communication in a sense because we know that people um engage with nature in all different kind of ways and we want to be able to i guess pander to that and say look you don't just you don't have to be a scientist you don't have to love science to love nature you can also be an artist you can also love art um you can also just be interested in going out for a walk and and getting some exercise if you if you love going for a run in nature so we're sort of trying to appeal to all different kinds of people and not um sort of pigeonhole ourselves in, mm. in one particular area uh, i mean a big part of this is connecting people back to you know essentially where we evolved isn't it i mean yeah i mean we've, we've you know i remember hearing a story uh can't remember who told me this a while back about a guy in the u.s who was able to go from his office uh, to his home and back through like a tunnel that was nearby and and he could also get to a supermarket that way he could literally not go outside for like months on end and he realized you know that as as that went on and on there was something dying in him you know like his health yeah. was actually his health was Absolutely. literally going downhill as a result and i think most people are aware that when you do get out into into one of these natural environments, even if it's just your backyard, but if you get the further you get out, the the more relaxed you become. The you, you know your your approach, your your entire sort of way of thinking can shift quite substantially as a result of, of being in there. And that's even without the that's without the sort of oh what is that? But you know that's without all the extra science stuff. And I think when, when you said you know it's good to be working with people who have an appreciation of the arts. I mean, my question: Are there people who don't have an appreciation of the arts? I mean, I know the answer to that is yes, but it's a disturbing answer because I think that's where there's there's other things that we need to focus on as well as just the core science. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and I know you your group has put some one of my favourite spots is the Organ Pipes National Park, you know, which I just think is just this fascinating connection between just you know that the wild aspect of Melbourne, but history as well and the geological history of, of the state, and and you can see it raw can see these structures roar and people people go down you see people down there and they're just you know they're just fascinated by this exposed rawness of history that's in front of them and there's some deep science there but um but that connectivity must be a big part of the interest that you guys are, are getting i assume oh absolutely yeah um we do because we, we do articles but um i should also mention we do productions we do community projects where we're trying mm. to um sort of show to people how such a you know how so many different melbournians and victorians are engaging with nature on very personal levels and um you touched on an interesting point talking about um the organ pipes in that i didn't really know anything about 
the organ pipes until I actually did a ge- um, geology subject at right. university yeah, and yeah. went there. And sort of thinking about that now, you know, I was I was fortunate enough to be able to go to university and, and learn about these things and, and these places that I might otherwise not have learnt about. But there's so many people out there that might not have that opportunity or might just not have that interest. So I think what Wild Melbourne is trying to do is to show people where these places are and to invite them to connect with them in their own personal way. So we're not being didactic in that sense. Mm. And we're also an apolitical organisation because we want we want everybody to be able to enjoy nature. Yep. Um, so, yeah, we want to show people those places where they can go, maybe give them, a, you know, a bit of information about it, whether it's, you know, science or history or whatever about that location. Um, and then they can go and engage with the nature there in their own personal way so we're not telling them how to engage with it but Mm. they can do it in their own way and hopefully that will in turn lead to them wanting to to protect it because they've then had this personal connection with it yeah Yeah. now melbourne's awesome but (laughs) you're thinking now of doing this nationally tell us a bit about the next step for wild melbourne because obviously the word melbourne's gonna have to change (laughs) what are you up to in a way well um we the plan is basically to launch we're launching a national brand it's called remember the wild it'll be launching in early october this year which is coming up pretty fast and the plan is to we're keeping wild melbourne on so um for everyone out there who loves wild melbourne um in its local context because i think that's why wild melbourne has been so successful is because it's so local and people can learn about local nature and science news and local community projects wild melbourne will be staying on as what we're calling a wild city so the idea is to have remember the wild is almost this umbrella organization that um we'll have a website for that as well where we'll publish articles we'll do videos um community projects on a nationwide level um and then that will sort of filter down to the wild cities. So the aim is to um, get similar projects like wild, wild Melbourne happening in, you know, wild Sydney, wild Brisbane, uh, the other capital cities around mm-hmm. Australia, so that we've got these local um, projects going on that then sort of filter back to the nationwide um, website, Remember the Wild, so that we can have, yeah, all different all different levels, basically, of nature engagement. So at the local level and then the nationwide level because um, we do want to publish sort of broader articles on on issues that... environmental and science issues that are Australia-wide but also perhaps internationally as well so that we can have that national presence but at the same time have the local presence in the wild city. So Remember the Wild um, will be functioning in a similar way to Wild Melbourne. We'll have, you know, the science articles, the arts articles, the adventure articles but with sort of a broader focus and then have Wild Melbourne and the other cities is going with the um, the local focus, yeah. And how much, one of the things I haven't noticed a lot of, but this may just be me, me not seeing it, <laughs> is um, the sort of in the water, you know, as we get off the coast, you know. Yeah. Is, is there going to be a lot of that now that you go national? Because, I mean, you know, I mean, not just the Great Barrier Reef, but even, you know, off the Western Australian coast, that we have some of the most amazing marine sort of areas in the world. Um, how much will that come into this, or is it, primarily landmass based or you know how no, far are you going no absolutely we've actually we've got a lot of people on the team that have a background in in marine marine mm. science so that is a big that's been a big part of wild melbourne as well um obviously in the winter months our website probably doesn't have as much about the beach because right. we do a lot of of snorkeling um and diving stuff more in the summer months but um we do yeah we do try and have a focus on the the sea as well as land so with remember the wild 
yeah, we are hoping to sort of bring that all together. I think um, we have a, a page up, rememberthewild.org.au, the, remember um, that's sort of a, a, a landing page at the moment before we, we do the big mm. launch in October, and that has um, just some, some general information like I'm giving you now about what it's going to be about, and I'm pretty sure one of the lines in there says something about how we'll be looking at the places you love, both land and sea. So we are very interested in bringing, bringing those two together and looking at, obviously, like the coastal environments that are sort of that, that in-between bit. Um, and obviously, Australia is so, so well known for mm. its beaches and for its oceans. So that's definitely not something that we'll be ignoring. Yep. Yeah. Well, Rachel, it's, it's a great thing. I mean, Wild Melbourne's been doing really well, as I say. It's not, it's uh, pretty easy to see its online presence and it's very easy to, um, to see how the, where the value is. And I know a lot of people that we've had on have talked about it and so forth. So you guys have done a fantastic job and I hope the national vision goes just as well. Um, congratulations. Keep up the hard work. I mean, this is a volunteer gig and I, I know the feeling. It can, you know, it can be a, a thankless task some days, but the success is in the, just the interest people have. So that's, that's fantastic. Thanks for coming and talking to us at Triple R. Thank you so much for having me. Rachel Featherston is the co-founder and publications authority at Wild Melbourne, soon to be Remember the Wild. That's correct. National. Yeah. Very <laughs> cool. And can I just say Featherstone as a name for someone running Wild Melbourne? It's just, <laughs> it's just perfect. It's good, yeah. yeah, it's just perfect. Free Triple R. Now, Ray, another hour gone. It was fun, Dr. Shane. Uh, it's nice think, to, uh, to, to be in Australia, too. <laughs> yeah, you poor bugger. I guess you're going to need to go home and make sure you don't go to sleep before you get back into our time zone. Yeah, well, I was up at, at stupid o'clock this morning for <laughs> jet lag. So. Yeah. It's like me. I was up at fishing o'clock yesterday, <laughs> oh, but the fishing okay. trip got cancelled because it was oh. too windy on the beautiful bay, which is a bit sad. I like going out on the bay. It's one of those wild things, Rachel. You know, <laughs> Rachel's still in the studio. <laughs> yeah, the bay is just magnificent. People don't appreciate it, but anyway, it's yeah. out there. Get out there and have a look, folks. It's, it's actually not a bad day today, although I believe it was hailing. Except for the hailstorm earlier. <laughs> this morning. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in to Einstein Go Go, folks, on Triple R. We're going to hand over now to the team from Eat It. Have a fantastic Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. And for those of you who have been subscribing and supporting Triple R, thank you very much for that. We appreciate it greatly. We'll chat to you again next Sunday. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.